Hey, early adopters and super VIPs. If you have not done so yet, please help us out by pounding that subscribe button and rating and reviewing us on Apple iTunes. We've got so many new and awesome interviews coming up that you won't want to miss. And we want to make sure that this podcast grows and gets even more awesome guests than we already have. Please do so. And we really appreciate your support. Welcome to Buy and Build, the podcast about buying a business and building in public. Uncover the wins and losses as we renovate our business together. Come along for the ride. Now, here are your hosts of Buy and Build, Nicholas Scalp and Daryl Lim. Yo, what's going on? It is your boy here, Daryl, here with super co-host Nicholas Scalp. Today, we've got an awesome guest. We've got Nick Fogel here. In case you don't know about Nick Fogel, he's the founder of Wave, which was recently acquired, and he's also running Churn Key now. And one of the reasons we actually got a hold of Nick was because we were on Indie Hacker, and one of his threads was one of the top posted stories. So first of all, congratulations on selling Wave. That is awesome. You know, it's pretty amazing what you've done. 150K in MRR. And yeah, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, what kind of music you're into, what kind of podcasts you listen to, and kind of what you do for fun. Yeah, sure thing. I'll try to keep it short. I have a tendency to ramble. So jump in with a question or cut me off if, if I do that at all. Yeah, so the big news of the, the month, we're finally able to, to share this. And you guys just had David and Marty on the call. These are the guys that run Comp Capital. They acquired our company, Wave. Was that the last podcast you guys did? Uh, it's one of the episodes that we just recently dropped, yes. Okay. Yeah, so I guess listeners can go back and kind of hear that side of it if you guys got into it at all. But yeah, we, we actually closed on, on the sale back at the very end of March. And we were finally able to share that information last week or the week before. So it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's hard to keep that a secret from people that are close to you when you have such a life-changing event. But anyway, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, myself. My name's Nick Fogel. I am a lawyer by training and I hated the practice of law. In 2012, I finished law school, abruptly decided that this wasn't for me. I had some family stuff come up and realized there's more to life than you know working a job that you hate because you're, you got this sunk cost. I ended up posting a housing wanted ad because my wife and I were so poor, we couldn't make rent. So I put a Craigslist housing one ad out, had to move out to like a very rural area and drive a shuttle for a resort out in this rural area. And during that time, I taught myself to code. I'd always been kind of a computer nerd and familiar with like HTML and like uh, building websites, but I hadn't actually you know properly learned how to code. So uh, I used this time to work on a little side project I wanted to build. And, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed the process of coding. It was really neat to be able to build something and immediately see the thing you built. Whereas with law, you write a contract and it might be 10 years if you ever see, you know, what happens with that. So anyway, uh, long story short, I turned that new skill set into an internship at a publicly traded software company here in Charleston and just worked my tail off for years and years and moved up in the company as a senior developer. And then in 2015, late 2015, Baird, uh, Baird Hall, my co-founder and I, our wives actually <laughs> introduced us. We were both hacking on ideas in our free time. Baird's background is in sales and marketing. And our wives were like, you guys need to get together. And, and Nick, you work on the engineering side. Baird can do some of the sales and marketing, see if you guys can, can put some of it together. So that brings us to Wave. Wave is the company we just sold for 20, late 2015, all of 2016. We basically wasted 18 months working on a product that was a really cool product. It was basically like Reddit for audio, so not, not too different from Clubhouse. But back in 2015 and 2016, nobody really cared about audio. So couldn't get venture funding. That was the whole thing. We were like, oh yeah, let's do the venture funding thing. We're going to like do a $3 million. This was back when like a Series A was really low. <laughs> like we'll get a Series A for like $2 million or $3 million and be rich. Anyway, that failed. We were kind of on our last leg with that company. It was clear it wasn't working. And as a Hail Mary, I kind of pulled this all-nighter and 
I found this, there was an open source project that allowed people to turn audio into video. And I was like, let's try this one last growth hack for Wave, like the company that was previously Wave, where we could convert all the audio that had been made on the platform and just push it out to Twitter and see what people thought of audio that was turned to video, see if that could make our app more sticky. Well, it turned out people didn't care about the app even after doing all that, but they really liked the video. They wanted to pay for it. So the rest is kind of history. We grew Wave, bootstrapped it over the next almost five years from that point, four and a half, five years, added a third partner, a guy named Rob Moore, who helped us a lot with front end, data viz, really smart guy that that was even really helpful on the financial side too when we needed it. Yeah. So the three of us kept running Wave and recently we, we sold it. And yeah, I've got a lot, I'm sure there's a lot of different avenues we can kind of dig into. Yeah. Actually, we wanted to know more about you, Nick. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> I had a chance to check out your your website. You kind of journal about different things, cryptocurrency, fitness, your life. Like, I think that's awesome. You know, building in public is really cool, but you're journaling your whole life as well as your business. So just talk about that a little bit so people know you and not just your business. Yeah, yeah. So nickfogel.com, it's my name.com. I've had that domain forever and I've finally tried to get in the habit of actually like jotting down everything that's happened. For a long time, I was really embarrassed to share personal things. And there is still like <laughs> some deeply personal things that I, I want to share one of these days and it's going to be just like a behemoth that I'm going to drop, but uh, now's not the right time. I've got some other stuff out there though that I would like to talk about. I think that whole saga of my life is one that people deeply relate to. A lot of millennials who have tremendous student loan debt from graduate school or whatever else. For me, like during this period when I decided I didn't want to do law school, I had $250,000 in student loan debt. And that's something I've written about a lot because there's not a lot that I can think of that is more oppressive than having a student loan debt of a quarter million dollars and having that accrue at over $50 a day when you're only making about $40,000 a year. It, it was just, and, and knowing that it's negatively amortized, it's growing over time. And that's actually kind of what got me into startups and cryptocurrency or, or Bitcoin rather. I knew that I had to take some asymmetric risk if I was ever going to get out of this hole. You know, part of me was like, and a lot of people do this. A lot of people will look at the loan and just say, I'll pay the minimums forever. Government will forgive it eventually. You live like that for a little while. And there's just this, this nagging thought that's always in the back of your head when you live like that, when you live with debts, that I am beholden to somebody and it's going to follow me and it's going to keep increasing. So I made up my mind Christmas of about 2015, I think it was Christmas 2016, maybe around the time I was starting wave that I was going to do whatever I could to get out from under this thing. Cause it was, it was about $250,000 of, of debt at that point. Yeah. So like, I think that's one of my biggest things I've done. And one of the things I'm most proud of over the last decade is just like not having any family support, no fallback plan, just not having anything, not even having like the, you know, lawyer job. Cause there weren't any cush lawyer jobs when I was out. A lot of people just assume like, yeah, it's a cool, take out six figures of debt. You're going to be a lawyer and you're going to pay it off. Nobody can pay that much off as a lawyer. So yeah, if I were to look back on the last decade of my life and what I was most proud of, it would be figuring out how to just totally retool my skill set, find something I like, and then learn how to make, learn how to find opportunities to take on some of these asymmetric, place these asymmetric bets, like investing a little bit in Bitcoin, like starting several startups. One wasn't enough. And also realizing like, if you really want to get out of debt, you can't just like, you know, sit on your butt to contract a little bit and then like work on your startup. Like, you need to be working full-time and running a startup and running your startup full-time. So for the last part of my twenties and early thirties, I was just working. Like, you know, it, it kind of, it definitely sucked. Like, you know, I missed out on friends, weddings. I missed out on a lot of like weekends and things like that. I, I hate the hustle porn culture that is popular. Like the Gary Vee stuff where people are like glorifying it. It's not fun or glamorous or anything like that. I, I still, you know, wish that I had been able to do some things in my twenties and early thirties that I wasn't able to do. You know, we delayed having a house, delayed having kids, like all that stuff. But today I'm so glad I did it because I can spend time freely with my kids. I've, you know, built a successful business out of that. I, I think it making my mind up to get out of debt and to take ownership of my situation, put me on a totally different trajectory uh, for the rest of my life.
if I had had like a great cushy legal job right out of school, I think it would have been a very different, very different situation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's, your story is pretty similar to mine. I, I, I was totally different. I was a lobbyist and I taught myself how to code too. So I like hundred cool. percent understand. And, you know, I love people who are like, you know what? I don't like this. Let's go figure it out. And like, you know, you, you really like epitomize that, that feeling of like, I'm going to go figure it out. I've, yeah. I've got a weird question for you. You said you, you always like learned HTML and like played around with that. How great was your MySpace? <laughs> oh man. You know, I actually didn't get that into MySpace. So I'm, I'm 34. So I, MySpace was like, I mean, it was definitely a thing, but I think Facebook was like the first social media platform I spent a lot of time in, I guess, senior year of high school, into senior year of high school, when we got our, our EDU emails, after we'd gotten in, we all got on Facebook. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't hack around on that a lot. I do have a funny, I've, I've got like a funny website I made when I was in fourth grade. I think it's on my, my public GitHub. Yeah. I've got, a, I'll just drop this in the chat. You guys will have a laugh in the Zoom chat here. This was the first website I ever made in fourth grade or fifth grade back in like <laughs> the mid nineties. And you, you can click around there and just get a taste for it. I found it on, a, on an old three and a half a floppy disk. And I just bought a, uh, a floppy disk reader in order to like pull these files off and see what the hell was on this thing. And it turned out to be this website I did for a uh, class project in fifth grade. It's kind of cool. This looks this like GeoCities. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's like GeoCities. Like, and the GIF has like really come back. I mean, talk about like contrast being awful. Just like... this, is, this is awesome. I did, you know, like I wasn't really a coder either, but I learned HTML myself when I was a little bit younger, maybe 13 14 years old to the same thing, like, like just started building websites, understanding how everything works, played around with graphics. I think that's, that's kind of how you get started. And if you're like yeah. naturally interested in something, you just figure it out. That's the key is the curiosity and like this desire to take something apart and, you know, want to put it back together. I made the mistake of like following the things that I thought were prestigious. Like I will be successful if I am a doctor. So I was pre-med and I had these internships that, you know, the in the surgical center. And then I was like, oh man, like, I don't want to spend the next eight years doing like residencies and fellowships. So I'm going to be a lawyer because that seems easier. I was an economics grad and the economy fell out. So I was like, yeah, I'll go, I'll go to law school. That's just as good. And, you know, I, I was chasing these dreams. And, you know, if I had really been honest with myself and reflected, and also if I had known that you could make a nice career as like a hacker, I think that's how I refer to myself rather than I'm not really a traditional software engineer because I don't approach problems in the same way. I approach problems as a hacker. Like, how can I make this thing happen as quickly as possible with the least effort as possible? But yeah, I, I think that is, if, if I had known that at the time, I would have probably dropped out of college and gone straight to it. I definitely wouldn't have, have spent three years in, um, in law school and, you know, done the whole, you know, prestigious lawyer thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think, I think you, you really put it well where it's like, you think you're going to go to law school and graduate and, you know, have a six figure job and it'll just pay off the debt. And then you totally. find out like all these traditional paths don't work anymore. Right. Yeah. And the funny thing about that was people just assume that they just, there's so people just have these stereotypes about professions like, Oh, you're a doctor. You must be rich. Oh, you're a lawyer. You must be wealthy. Oh, you're, finishing law school, you're going to have great job prospects. And the, the firm that I had clerked for all through law school, when they gave me a job offer, and in 2012, we were still in a pretty bad legal recession. It was kind of like a, it trailed the actual um, rest of the recession by a bit. The firm, so yeah, there weren't many jobs to begin with. I was lucky to get an offer, but it was a mid $40,000 salary. So, like you can't even service the interest on the debt with that. So I had to refuse. I was just like, this isn't going to work. And so I like did I had all these applications in. I, I did apply for some federal jobs in DC and almost got one at the treasury for uh, TARP because I had that economics background as well. I'm still waiting on a call back from that one too. They, they said they'd call me back anytime. They kept delaying. So yeah, that's that's me kind of rambling now about it. But I do think it's, I, I think it's becoming more common that people, you know, go after these advanced degrees because as we were growing up, this is what was, we learned that's what success, that's the best thing you can do is invest in yourself. This is what it means to be successful is to have this pedigree. And uh, it's not really necessary to have a good life now. 
Yeah. 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 Absolutely agree. You know, you've been talking about like how you've been kind of figuring stuff out and hacking along your whole life and doing all this stuff. And it's a testament to you, like you're you and your hard work and figuring everything out with uh, university, going to school. I mean, that's no easy task. Like I can't even fathom wanting to go to school that long and studying and putting my face in a book for that long, but you did it. That, so that's pretty amazing in itself. Maybe just tell us a little bit more about your entrepreneurial journey. Like, where did you start? Like, what was yeah. your first business? What was your second business? How'd you get to Wave and where you're at? And we'll, we'll talk sure. more about other stuff, but maybe stop at Wave and then we'll start talking about Wave again. Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds good. So to kick things off with the whole you know entrepreneurial side of things, I've always been really interested in finances and, you know, like I mentioned, hacking around, even, you know, hacking around on games on the old TI-83 graphing calculator. I'd say my, my first startup venture was after law school. I, actually, as I was going through law school and working at law firms, I realized like just how inefficient legal education was. It's like the most difficult way to learn something. You'll be assigned, you know, roughly 40 pages of very small text case law. And your job is to read it, analyze it, synthesize some takeaways. And you're expected to come to, you know, a classroom of like 80 to hundred people. And you could be called on any given, any given day. And you need to spit out the facts, you know, what you synthesized about the different arguments and some kind of conclusion. And you'll be shamed publicly if you either didn't do the reading or if you have, you know, poor takeaways. And I realized this was a very ineffective way to learn. You're, you're using fear to force people to read and you're trying, like people aren't really seeking to like ingest the information and actually make, like build this foundational set of knowledge. <laughs> what you're doing is just trying to avoid embarrassment in a lot of cases. And it's really, really boring. Like you could really just like skip out on a lot of the readings and you know, part of it is teaching you how to think, but there are better ways to do it. So anyway, I was like, this is such like an arcane way of learn learning. Like I'm a visual learner and I would like to have a visual way of learning law. So I set out to create a company called See the Law. And I used like visual diagrams and charts and graphs and um, illustrations to actually communicate complicated legal concepts. I think that site is still out there. I made a Tumblr, seethelaw.tumblr.com. Yeah, still out there. Cool. Yeah, so this was back in 2012, 2013. Like this was why I, I taught myself to code too. So I was working on a really, really hard problem and there wasn't a great business strategy behind this. I think it was just like, I did, I lacked the skill set to build what I had envisioned, which was these like interactive learning modules that you'll be able to, click through and I assume people would pay like a monthly subscription for it or something. And I got kind of burnt out like midway through. And I also landed an inter a paid internship at the software company. And I was like, well, you know, I, I don't really have time to do this right now. And uh, I, I was enjoying like actually coding. So it kind of went on hold and I never came back to it. I still think this is a problem that needs to be solved, but uh, yeah, that was my first business. And it, it did kind of flop because I never monetized. I never really even tried to monetize. I talked to some people and they, you know, I had people saying they're willing to pay for it. And even in law school, I would make outlines and people would pay for my outlines because they were very graphical, very detailed where I'd illustrate different entities in a, a case. And yeah, so there was something there. I just never really connected the skill set of being able to build it with, with a, a um, market for it. I also note that I was such a naive founder. I was like, reaching out to all these developers I found online and I'd just be like, Hey, I'll give you 50% equity. Or I don't even think that I was probably offering like 10 or 15% equity as some naive first time founder to like get a developer to help me. So that's really why I was like forced to learn a lot was like, nobody's going <laughs> to, nobody's going to work with me. So yeah, that was a, a big learning experience. And it was also foundational for pushing me to learn to code. Cause I was like, I need to build this quickly. I need to like learn all these skills. And I was driving a shuttle like during this whole time. I, I wasn't using my law degree. Uh, family members and people I knew were like, I mean, really like concerned. I even ran into a, a CPA that shared office space with the law firm I worked for. And she said, I'll never forget this. She said, your parents must be so disappointed because, you know, she's looking at it as he's like driving a shuttle now as like a lowly web developer or trying to be and uh, he could have been this great attorney kind of thing. I'd love to run into her again. 
<laughs> but uh, yeah, so that was that whole first era of my entrepreneurial journey. And then the second era was one called You Talk Sports. And You Talk Sports, this was Baird's idea. He had been using an app called Voxer. I don't know if you guys remember that. Voxer was like a walkie-talkie app that you could use to talk back and forth to people and kind of like asynchronous real time. And he and his, his buddies were using it all the time to talk about sports teams and games and things like that. And as Baird and I met up, we realized like, how cool would it be if there was an app that was focused around sports and you had these like, we kind of broke it down into these Reddit style, like subreddit style rooms where, you know, you could go into like, I don't know, like San Francisco 49ers team room. And then everybody could just talk about the team and audio. We realized early on that audio conveys so much more emotion and context than, than writing does. And now they're actually seeing this with clubhouse and Twitter spaces and all this other stuff. But at the time, we had to raise venture money to do this and nobody was um, <laughs> nobody was really interested in audio and podcasting was still a pretty fledgling pursuit back then, which is strange to say now it's so big and that was only five years ago. So yeah, we hacked around on Utah Sports. This is where I really built out some strong engineering chops because it was really complicated. I had to build a mobile app for Android, mobile app for iOS, like this whole like push notification service, APIs, like I built out the whole infrastructure. It was like the most complicated thing I'd ever built. And I was just learning as I went. And I probably and put even, a thousand. I was going to say, even back then, I, I remember just a few years ago, there was like hybrid mobile was the new thing. And Facebook was like abandoning going, you know, mobile hybrid because like the tools weren't there. So it was still a pretty nascent platform so totally you no know, I, I can only imagine how tough that was to actually build them both discreetly like as well, an early developer so i did this with one of the hybrid frameworks called ionic at the time but and, and the thought at first was like oh i can use this hybrid framework and then you know it just magic but it doesn't work like that like you'd hit these <laughs> weird you'd hit these weird like recording issues on like an android phone from like 2012 or something or 2013 and you'd have to like get into the code and debug it and then run like emulators and I mean, I spent well over a thousand hours in addition to like my day job, like this, during this year, I was like working 80 hours a week, every week easily, because I was trying to support all these users. We were also trying to fundraise. We were doing all these different things to get that running. And I had a, you know, a corporate job where I was flying, traveling internationally to do these on-site installs for people. It was very, very stressful. Probably, yeah, probably one of the more stressful periods of my life after the corporate job though, I, I got a job with a new agency that myself and some others in Charleston kind of started. They were three of these guys like had come from another corporate uh, group and uh, we realized how much more money we could make running an agency. And, you know, we were basically doing the same service model that I had before at the other company, but able to make three times as much. And then that gave me a lot more flexibility and it helped me to free up time as we moved away from Utah sports and onto wave. So the, the last chapter of Utah sports, this, the problem, we learned a lot. We learned, we made every mistake you could like, so Utah horrible name because everything is trademarked. So we had trademark issues. We couldn't get a name. Then we had to change the name. So toward the end of Utah sports, we actually changed to wave. We then went and incorporated in Delaware. Cause that's what one of our advisors told us to do. And then we had all these franchise fees and things like that. Cause nobody told us about it. So yeah, we just created all this chaos and like additional work for ourselves through a lot of these decisions we made. We also had spent a lot of money and just wasted so much time on it. But this was crucial because we took all those lessons and made sure not to make the same mistakes when we moved into Wave and what Wave actually became. Do you guys want me to jump into Wave and kind of talk about quickly through the origins? And then I don't really know where a good place to stop on that journey is all the way to the end or, you know, somewhere maybe to like product market fit. Yeah. I mean, so the question was a uh, follow-up for wave is like, you know, how did you come up with this idea? How did you get to the point of sale and like, how did you grow the business? Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people out here who have an idea and maybe they can get it formulated. They work with a developer, but then they're like, well, how do I get it out there? So then people adopt it and actually use it. Like, did you use product con hacker news or paid ads, you know, like whatever you can. Okay. Yeah. So the, the origin of, of the actual product for wave is funny because it was, it was intern, intended to be an internal tool we used to promote 
the audio that came from this Utah sports app. And we wanted to be able, one thing that we realized was audio shares very, it's very poorly on Twitter. It used to be because it would just be like a little soundbar thing, like a little like embedded audio player. So nobody would share audio on Twitter. And then even if they did, nobody's going to click on it. Same thing with other platforms too at the time. So I'd created this like embedded player card, Twitter card, and that started to work really well, but it just wasn't, it, it still wasn't as effective as we wanted it to be. So uh, a company or a nonprofit organization called WNYC, it's a nonprofit radio station. They have a very active podcasting group and, and they have some engineers on staff. One of the engineers had created a tool that would allow you to take audio and plot waveforms, plot the actual you know, peak and trough of the waveform. And it was at a very like beta stage. There was like no product for it. You would have to install this and host it yourself. It was complicated. And there were a lot of issues in the GitHub repository where everybody was like asking for help with this thing. I didn't really think much about that at first. I just pulled it down, built this thing out. And then we started customizing it and using it for to promote our internal customers. Immediately, we started getting great feedback from our customers saying like, hey, I am not really willing to pay for this, you know, you talk sports app, but I love these wave promotional cards. Could I customize one for my business? I'll pay you for that. So Baird started really promoting this um, to a lot of customers. In fact, I made a, um, I made a little RSS scraper that would pull down all the existing iTunes podcasts at the time and email addresses, which was pretty awesome. So he could just reach out directly to podcasters and say, Hey, we've got this tool. Would you like to try it? Most people still hadn't seen this at the time. We were the first organization to commercialize the audiogram, which is like the audio turned to video that you see on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and Instagram these days. And at first, like I was very skeptical that this thing was going to turn into you know a profitable business. I was like really, really stingy with dev time. I mean, because I just spent a thousand hours in this project. I had a quarter million in student loan debt. And I was like, I need to be... Con- I was billing a contract rate of like $130 an hour. So I was like, why would I waste time on a failed product if I've got all these loans to pay and I could just be billing like crazy working as much as I can. But something in me was like, you need to stick with it. Like you need to keep pushing. Like this is still, there's still an opportunity here. So I guess as I, as I look back at that, <laughs> that phase of my life, it was, it, it's kind of strange that I even stuck with it. But yeah, we, we kept pushing things out and I was like, I would add a little feature here and a little feature there. We didn't even have a website though, going back to like being stingy. Like I wasn't even going to set up a website. We had an IP address. You had to go to like a literal IP address. You had to send us the background image you wanted. We would put it together for you. I taught Baird how to commit code to GitHub and then I had auto deploy set up. So I didn't even have to like touch it to do that. So it wasn't even self-serve, but we would still get emails and customers were willing to pay. So after a few months of this, we had, I don't know, like 20 or 30 customers. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to build out a proper like <laughs> database and uh, schema and, and everything you need for like a, a legitimate app. And uh, we kept growing. I think we got to about a thousand dollars a month after five or six months, which was significant. Like our goal at that point was what if we could one day pay our mortgages with this company? Yo, what's going on buying Bill Fem? We are currently in the works of building a meditation Chrome app extension, and we are almost ready to launch. We've got a beta test group that we're setting up here, and all we need is your help to get feedback. So if you're interested in testing out this app, this is specifically for you. To be a part of this group, all you need to do is click on the link below, enter your email, and we'll send you some follow-up instructions when we're ready to launch. So I, I started investing more and more time and going deeper and building, I built out like a custom editor so that customers, it was all self-serve. The funny thing about, until I created that custom editor, Baird was still like making all of these by hand. Like he would, they would send him a card and he'd like upload it and like change it around so that it would show up properly for them when they were ready to create their, their audiogram. So by May, I was working on the self-serve editor and all these new features. And when we released that, it was a game changer. Like we just, growth exploded because it was self-serve. People didn't have to wait on us. It made life easier for us. And we got to a 5,000 monthly recurring revenue pretty quickly after that. From there, it was just kind of a rocket ship. I mean, we just, we kept building features. I kept, you know, at least like every three or four months, I would 
drop like a huge improvement to like infrastructure or editing. There were quite a few of those, but it, it wasn't like I was doing, you know, 40 hours a week. Not really until the end was I, you know, spending that crazy amount of time on it. It was probably 25 or 30 hours a week consistently. Sometimes I would, you know, work weekends. I, I had a nine to five job at this point at a cryptocurrency company and that was very demanding. So I, I ended up using my vacation time at that company to do wave releases because we would need something really badly for wave. And I would just take a week of my vacation and then work all week. Yeah. So it's nice to see that that has, has paid off now, like looking back, but at the time it was, it was very difficult. I think that takes us kind of like 2019. That's like the midway point before we got our first acquisition offer. I'll stop there in case there are any questions. Yeah, dude, it's, it's hilarious that your, your product was an IP address. <laughs> that's it, the most like build things that don't scale that I've ever mm -hmm. heard. And like people, <laughs> and, and the funny thing is there wasn't a database. It was just like an entry in GitHub. So like everybody <laughs> could see everybody else's designs in a dropdown. And like, if you wanted to use like a different radio stations design, you could just pick it. Like, but people yeah. wanted to, like, but what was the alternative? I mean, they would have to spin this up themselves with like Docker containers and like have a hosting environment. Nobody had that. Yeah. It's an interesting model for business, like finding things like this, that, that already exist, improving them and then making it easy for people to use. So uh, yeah. that, that issues list too, was a gold mine in that WMYC audiogram repository, because I could just look, what are people asking for and, mm -hmm. you know, start building those things. And that's, that's amazing. So WMYC, for people who don't know, I think their biggest podcast is Radiolab, which is like mm -hmm. the number one podcast or like number two. So, you know, that, that probably had a lot of visibility on it. And from the other end, like I remember iTunes launched with that little, like the, the like wave thing that, yeah. you know, so it wasn't like a brand new idea. It's just amazing. You brought it to like this new sector and it, yeah. you know, just took off. It was like timing, like we understood the market. We understood this is a huge problem sharing audio and social. And when we, you know, found like, oh, wow, these people have already created this. This would have taken me like hundreds of hours to build this from scratch. And we could see that there was customer demand. It was much better to be able to take that and then improve upon that and make it user-friendly. We were, I think we were six months. So the biggest competitor to Wave now is probably like uh, Headliner. And I, we were probably six months ahead of them. Like, I think Barrett even messaged their founder on social before they pivoted. They were, before that, they were doing like, I don't know, it was like voicemail audio or something. And by the time they moved, pivoted, we were like, oh, wow. Like our little niche market isn't so niche anymore. Like these guys are like venture backed and they're, you know, they're gunning for it because they've seen like, you know, there's opportunity. Yeah. So what, what made you stay as bootstrap then? If, you know, your competition was venture back, did you feel the pressure to be like, okay, we got to grow fast right now? I mean, yeah, but I, I think from our point of view, we were still, our expectations were still like, let's be able to pay our mortgages with this and like pay ourselves a small sum of money. We didn't want the hassle of like, you know, scaling and building a team. And I don't know that we were very confident in our ability to fundraise before. Like the first time we tried it, it had been such a flop. We're located in Charleston, South Carolina. And back then people, everybody wanted you to be in the Bay area. Like that's totally different now, totally different. But back then it was like, they're not even going to talk to you or they are, but you can tell they're not really, not really into it. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's like, uh, I think that's probably our biggest, that was our, our biggest uh, hesitation was just like, <laughs> we don't really want the responsibility and it was a passive income play really. Yeah, that makes sense. So 2019, 2020, yeah. simple year, nothing crazy happens, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, and, and the funny thing about, so we were never even thinking of this as something that would get acquired. 2018, the product continued to grow. I think we were about 30,000 in revenue by uh, January of 2019. And then Spotify's business development department reached out to us. And we were like, whoa, like, is Spotify going to acquire us? Turns out it didn't turn into anything. They realized how small we were and they were like, see you later. It's not worth the cost of the deal or like putting the deal together. But we had a broker that reached out who represented an interested buyer and it was a really compelling offer. And for somebody like me that had a ton of student loan debt, like this solved it immediately. Like the, the proceeds from that sale would solve the student loan debt. It would cover most of my financial bases for, you know, a few months and help me catch up on retirement. Like it, it seemed incredible. And it was almost too good to be true. 
And as we sat down and ran the numbers, Baird was in a very different financial situation than me with, you know, no student loan debt. So he was looking at it from a different point of view of like, you know, we could wait a year and do this or wait two years and do this. And I'm glad that he like pushed on that at that point, because I think if I had been a solo entrepreneur with this, I would have immediately like forgotten about the opportunity that was there and just said, take, you know, I'll take the money and take my chips off the table. So that was an inflection point where I doubled down that, that following year in 2019, where I, I was still at Casa working on Bitcoin custody and doing pretty crazy hours there. But now I realized how much of my net worth was tied up in Wave because we had a month, like we had an offer and I was like, this is how much I've given up. So we really doubled down. I rewrote like everything that, that year, 2019 with the plan that in 2020 we would sell. It was just, it seemed like the best time to do it. We'd get all this technical debt handled, uh, update security, grow more. We had some targets. We had a number in our heads of like what we wanted. And just as we're talking to brokers and getting a sale tentatively queued up, we get, we, we get COVID lockdowns and all the money goes home basically. So that was a, a very challenging year, I think, because, you know, we'd been working for this whole period of time and we were just ramping up and like getting ready to do the sale. I'd been just killing myself working crazy hours between Casa and Wave. And suddenly like, we're not going to sell, be able to sell Wave. So I was like, someone's got to give. Kid was home from daycare. It was just, it was rough. So I left my job at Casa, which I really, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that company and the mission and what we were doing. It was a, a hard decision, but I, in, in hindsight, like I, I needed it for my health. And it was the right decision because Wave needed more attention. It was more of represented more of my net worth. And it was still just three of us running Wave. So it, it really did. My impact made, it made my involvement made more impact every hour I could commit to it. And then 2020 though, like it couldn't have gone better in terms of what happened after COVID. I know a lot of businesses struggled and it was, it was a horrible nightmarish year for tons of industries. And I consider us very lucky to have been an online service that was able to catch that tailwind from the creator economy and more people being at home and wanting to get this creative energy out. Wave actually doubled over the period that COVID lockdowns were in place. So in hindsight, it worked out much better that this basically forced us to stay with the business, keep optimizing. And by the time this fall came around, we weren't like, the profit distributions were so good every month we had zero pressure to sell. Like it was, I'd heard this before where, you know, a really good business is one you, you don't want to sell. If you're building a business to sell it, over time, your desire to sell it should go down because the free cash flows are incredible. You know, you've got steady, pretty growth, like you understand it. And ultimately our decision to sell the company, it actually came down to a few things. While the the growth prospects were great for Wave and the money was great, like passive income was great, Number one, we were ready to start something else because we'd been working in this space for five or six years and we wanted to start a new company. Number two, we all have young children. Baird's got a, a young um, daughter and I've got two children um, under three. So that was a huge influence on our decision to, to sell. And also just like knowing how much of our net worth was tied up in weight and like feeling that it was time to take some chips off the table and work on something new. Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense. So I guess going from there, you know, what's, what's the new project? What are you working on? So new product, it's called Turnkey. And uh, this was actually solving a problem that Wave had. It, it kind of reminds me of how we started Wave and, and why that became successful. We were solving a problem that we had. Audio didn't share well. We built an internal tool. And it solved a lot of other people's problems because it was a it was a general need, not a need just specific to us. Well, with a, a B2C business like Wave or even a prosumer business where you're paying agencies and individuals are coming to pay you for your service, you deal with very high churn. And the podcast industry is like a lot of other industries where usage is cyclical. So people like they leave and they come back and they leave and they come back. And that creates really high churn. And churn is horrible for your top line growth. You'll hit a revenue ceiling a lot earlier if you've got, you know, 1% higher churn. And Wave was like 14% churn at one point and our revenue ceiling was 35,000. We were like, 
you know, this is it, this is the end. If we don't fix churn, it's over. So Churnkey plugs right in to the cancellation flow. So the point where a user would cancel. And when somebody clicks cancel, we hit them with a survey. If you've been on like a streaming service and you've like a, you've seen these before where you'll get a survey and it asks you, you know, why are you leaving? And some of them, some of these companies that have like a big developer team will have a very sophisticated offboarding flow. Sometimes these are annoying. Sometimes these are helpful. We've tried to build a simple tool that any business can plug in, any, any SaaS business can plug in, and it handles this cancellation flow in a user-friendly way. So let me tell you how it works. Like somebody would be about to cancel wave, let's say it's a podcaster, and they click, you know, they're not using the product right now as the reason. Well, we offer them the opportunity to pause at that point because maybe their podcast season's over. Like there's no sense in just totally canceling. Like, why don't we just say, hey, you can pause for three months or two months. Uh, the other situation that became more popular during COVID is people were budget constrained. So they were cutting subscriptions across the board. And we were like, why don't we just offer a 50% discount if customers are having budgetary issues? That was huge for, for recovering and, and preventing churn. So there are a number of these different reasons why customers leave. And with Turnkey, we build the tools. They're actually no code tools. So you don't even need to be a programmer to build your own cancellation flow. But you can actually design this that's specific to your product. You wanna anticipate reasons why customers will leave and think about how you can retain them. Another option would be like a uh, customer has a technical support problem or it's missing a feature or they can't figure out how it works. Any of those reasons and we can trigger your intercom pop-up or your chat support pop-up immediately and you get you in touch with somebody before you actually churn. So the cool thing about Turnkey is it, it was born out of this need we had with Wave. We got our churn down from like 14% to 9%, as low as 8%. And that was like, we were like, this is it. This is our next product. Like, let's build this for everybody. There are a lot of companies that can't afford to take three months away from their core product development and build this sophisticated flow. Let's do it ourselves. So we launched that last, I guess we launched privately last fall. So just to recap, Turnkey is an excellent way to save your dev developer team time and go ahead and get one of these cancellation flows in and start saving you money right away. Typically a customer will cut 20 churn by like 25 to 35%, depending on their industry and like what their churn numbers already are. So it was like, just from our, our private beta, we realized like we wanna be all in on this. And it's really, really hard to be focused on multiple products and running multiple companies at the same time. So we saw the opportunity to turnkey, we were ready for something new. And we also wanted to try like this. We've been in like the B2C space and we wanted to try to help other businesses. So it's been fun. It's been different and challenging so far. Like the B2B sales cycle is just so much longer than, you know, making a, you know, a sale to a podcaster or a creator, but it's fun. And we all enjoy the learning phase. So we launched publicly in January and things are going really well so far. Nice. That's really good. How are you guys getting or acquiring new businesses? Are you going through like cold emailing, cold calling, or like you trying to launch on different websites, advertisements? We're still figuring that out. We had, so we've got a, a decent little following on indie hackers just from being involved in that community over the years. And that was helpful for like, like seeding this first beta list. Then we did some Twitter ads, which didn't really work. We tried Facebook ads and Google ads. Paid ads have not worked very well for this. And then it's like, part of it is just brainstorming, like what businesses do we know that are similar to Wave? Because like we found that, you know, Wave is a great example, especially with this like exit announcement we had. Where recently, we, recently we've been able to like tell this story about Wave and like how we save so much and how, you know, if you're a business and you're planning on an exit, you know, you can really help your multiple by just cutting churn. So like telling this story has really helped as we're reaching out to other founders with, you know, kind of, kind of cold email, a little warm. Like sometimes you can reach out on Twitter. Twitter is actually a great way to reach out. Uh, if somebody's DMs are open and they see you, like you're a legit person, you're not like the, you know, guy on LinkedIn who's just like <laughs> spamming people all day. So yeah, it's, it's, there's been a variety of channels where we've acquired customers. We don't have like a really great one that's got like 90% of customers are coming from that one. We're still trying to figure that out. So, you know, hopefully we will, we'll have that nailed down in the next few months. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a super substantial product too. I mean, if you're, if you're cutting churn by multiple percent, like that's huge. 
Yeah, we've got a little calculator on the website and you go to churnkey.co, C-H-U-R-N-K-E-Y.co. And at the top, there's like a little ROI calculator. So you can like click on this resources nav navigation item. And we've got a churn calculator. We've got a growth ceiling calculator. We also do a free churn audit too. So if you're a business and you're like wondering what churn might be costing you, we're happy to do a free churn audit for you. And the other thing that I've promised so far is like, I'll give you double your money back if you don't get ROI. So if you're, if you are somebody that fits the criteria for running turnkey, which is like you run on Stripe and you know, you, you have to hit a certain revenue threshold. Cause if you're only, if you got one customer a month or two customers a month, you're probably not going to have enough churn to justify it. But I've told people, Hey, I'll give you double your money back. If you fit the basic criteria for, you know, what you need to be successful it, just to make it risk-free. And so far I haven't had to give anybody's money back. So that's been good. Wow. That's a pretty impressive guarantee that you got there. I mean, that should kind of sell itself as long as you can get in front of people and let them know that. Yeah. The, the biggest obstacle is timing. I think we're realizing that like we've got so much data, especially now that we're plugged into a lot of different companies, there's just so much data to confirm like the way consumers behave as they go through this flow. It's very predictable. Like we, I feel pretty confident that like mostly all businesses that, that fit this criteria are going to save, you know, 30% of churn. And uh, the challenge though is we'll talk to the customers, we'll give a demo. And a lot of them will be like, oh, I've got to get it plugged into my, my product roadmaps. And like, you know, it might be a month or two before I can get this in there. And I want to just be like, hey, you guys are losing money today. You're losing money every day. This thing isn't in there. Like what is a higher priority than making money if you're running a business? But I understand like we're, you know, this is a newer idea. People tend to be more focused on growth. And a lot of those companies do eventually install it. It's just like a longer sales cycle than I would like. And, you know, I'm a very logical numbers guy. And when I look like, you know, I built the product that I wish had existed for Wave. And when I see companies that it's like, you guys could, you're leaving money on the table. Like you could be making so much more. It's hard to hear that. But I think it's just a process of like continuing to refine our pitch educate and building out uh, tools so people can actually visualize how much they're, how much they'd be saving with these, these interactive calculators we've got on the website. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I think it makes great sense. You know, hopefully a lot of people who listen to this, go check it out. And, you know, I, I think it's an immediate, you know, <laughs> ROI, like, and you're given a great, uh, a great, you know, no risk type setup. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's it, our new product is churnkey.co, C-H-U-R-N-K-E-Y.co. And uh, you can reach out to me at Nick Fogel on Twitter. If you have any questions, I'd love to, if you're a company and you're thinking about an exit, there's, it's, there's no better time to get this plugged in. Like do it ASAP because an acquirer is going to want to look at your churn for the last 12 months. And they're going to want to look at your profits for the last 12 months. So if you have any plans of selling at any point, Get this in now because that's going to affect your multiple and it's also going to affect your your actual 12-month trailing profits. I think what we'll do is uh, we'll drop a link in the description. People can go check it out. And then maybe if you have like a referral or something that you want yeah. to place in your code, someone can enter that code and then like sign up for your turnkey. Cool. Yeah, I, I'll definitely do that. After the call, I will shoot a, a, a coupon code over. Yeah, awesome. for sure. We'll make um, sure to drop the Einstein link in the, the notes too. Yes, do it. <laughs> do it. I'm glad that's hosted on GitHub so it can handle the load. Although those, those like old school HTML, like if you actually, if you're a coder and you inspect the, the source code on that, it is like ugly. It's these HTML elements I didn't even realize still exist until I looked at it. Like just weird stuff. It's all centers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird. Very, very weird looking in there. But yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Definitely drop that in there too. And I, yeah, I know I ramble a bit about the, the saga of like getting from lawyer to coder to entrepreneur. But if you want, I've got a ton of writings on my blog, nickfogel.com. And uh, yeah, it's hard to tell that story in a linear fashion. It's hard. I want to jump back and forth a lot, but I've got a lot, a lot more linearity on my uh, personal blog. So you know, before we let you go, we got to ask you for some advice. So if someone is looking normally, like the podcast is about like buying a business, building it up and then selling it, you know, here, like we actually love this angle of 
building it up and then selling it as well. So maybe if you have advice for anyone who's either looking to buy a business and build it up, or if they're looking to just build it and then sell it, like what kind of advice do you have for somebody going through your own journey? So you're saying just, just from the angle of like building it to sell it? Just like in general, like if someone's starting out and they're like, you know, people are on Indie Hacker or on Reddit or Hacker News, you know, they're starting off and you mm-hmm. went through this whole journey where, you know, you sacrificed a lot to get to the point that you're getting to. So people will have probably like a macro vision of like, hey, I want to sell this in the future, but maybe you have some different advice in the micro, like what should they be focusing on and like, how do they progress? Totally. First thing is to be patient and realize that like you might spend a year or even two years busting your tail and working on the wrong thing or something that doesn't pan out. And it's important to realize that that is free education. It's not free because it's your time, but it's better than a four-year college degree, I think. And change your time preference so that you're, you're not thinking about, you know, how much money can I be making this time next year? Or like, what kind of business can I, you know, build in the next two years. People always overestimate what they can do in one year, but I guarantee you people will underestimate what they can do in 10 years. So if you start looking at things from what can I build in a decade and taking consistent action and making a lot of these asymmetric bets, like starting a company, um, investing a small sum of money into a cryptocurrency or a a startup, or, you know, looking at, at opportunities like that, not gambling, like making informed, educated decisions about, you know, some of these investments and then just working your tail off on a, in a nine to five while you're placing these bets and, and putting your time preference as not one year, not two years, but I want this thing to pay off in 10 years. I think that's the way you look at it. And if you're looking at an entrepreneur who is, you know, if you're in a debt situation or if you don't have the right skill set, if you just change your frame of mind and your timing, you're going to have less likelihood of burning out. You're going to feel more optimistic about your future and you're going to be less likely to get discouraged because you're viewing this as a long-term thing, not a, not like there's a lot of pressure to create some, you know, overnight success or, or change who you are. Awesome. That's amazing advice. So really appreciate you jumping on the call here today. It was amazing getting to know you, Nick. In case anyone is out there uh, looking at any hacker, Nick's story about uh, how he was a lawyer, how he bootstrapped Wave, and he sold it. He has an AMA that's one of the top stories. So congratulations on being one of the top stories and getting everyone's attention. We're happy to have you on this episode. We're going to drop your Twitter, a link to your business, and you know a few other links besides that. Thank you very much for coming on the call. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure uh, talking to you guys. For everyone else who joined this call, thank you very much. We appreciate you as early adopters who are listening to our podcast and our super fans. We'll see you in the next one. You can find more episodes and a link to the community of Buy and Build Podcast at buybuildpod.com. Remember to like, rate, and share with your friends on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Join us again next week as we continue our journey. We'll see you in the next one.